0: This morning, we are stepping out into a new sermon series through the life of Abraham. Um, In the coming weeks, we're going to explore what God and His Word tells us about this man who I think by anybody's reckoning would be one of the most significant human personalities that we find in all of the Word. In John 8 we find an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. These guys have come off looking badly following a number of public skirmishes with Jesus. However, at this point in John chapter 8, they are really and truly just done messing around. <laughs> They're done shadowboxing. Jesus uh, had this habit of responding to their questions with veiled language that had meaning for people who had ears to hear, but not for those who didn't. And he had this habit of answering their questions with another more probing question that revealed the motives behind their questions to begin with. And they've just kind of had it. They're tired of this shadow boxing and this way that Jesus has of interacting with them. And in John eight fifty three, they just come right out and in public, they put the question right to him, who do you make yourself out to be? You've been hinting with all kinds of blasphemous hinting that you have a superior wisdom and authority. You have these claims even to divinity. And they're just tired of it, and they just come right out, and they say to Jesus, who exactly do you think you are? (laughs) Say it. And Jesus, for his part, who so often spoke with veiled language that held meaning, again, just for those who had ears to hear, and who had this habit of responding to questions with questions, in this instant, he answers them in about as direct Clear and forthright a way as anyone could have hoped for. Harkening back to an earlier part of their exchange in chapter 8, when the Pharisees had stated proudly that they were offspring of Abraham, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Wow. Guys, he is not hiding from anything in this answer. I am is the name that God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses when he asked, What's your name? What shall I tell the people to call you? I am. Jesus said before ever Abraham was, before this whole tradition of faith began, I am. That's the name of God. And in making this statement, Jesus was claiming in a clear, unambiguous way that he was God. He is the God who spoke the world into being out of nothing. And he is the God who initiated a special relationship with that great pioneer of the faith, Abraham saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, there is a whole world of truths that we could explore surrounding this incredible statement that Jesus made. C.S. Lewis said it well, you know, and it's a quote that a lot of Christians are familiar with, but some people, in an, I think kind of a, a dismissive way, reduced Jesus to some kind of great moral teacher. But C.S. Lewis said, that's the only options available to you is that he was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was precisely who he said he was. You can't say he's this great guy and a good moral teacher because he went around saying things like, I'm God. I'm the creator. And if any one of us in this room stood up and said that kind of thing right now, we would all get very nervous and dial 9-1 and then wait. (laughs) Jesus was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, a crazy man, or he was Lord. He was who he said he was. He really didn't leave those options available to us. And if he is who he said he was, then you have to reckon with his claims. His claims on your life and mine. There's a lot we could talk about surrounding this incredible statement, but what we are going to talk about is possibly one of the smaller, more insignificant parts of this sentence, because that's how I roll. (laughs) No, not really. We're going to get to some important truths here in a bit. There is actually here in this sentence something that Jesus and the Pharisees agree on. God's people trace their origins back to one great pioneer of faith, a man named Abraham. When they were trying to find the name of a human being, when Jesus said, before this guy, I am, he chose Abraham. Abraham is the father of all who believe, according to Romans 4.11. There were other people who believed in God before Abraham, people like Noah, people like Abel, Adam. There have been a long line of believers, but God began his special revelation to mankind and his covenant relationship with a group of human beings back to Abraham. Abraham is really the start of the church. He's the start of God's people. And so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees agree, Jesus agrees, on the importance, the historical importance, of Abraham as the beginning of God's people. Abraham, in the biblical account, of course, was not the first But Abraham was the first who God drew into this special covenantal relationship in this way. And not only with him, but also with his descendants forever. God made a promise, a covenant, a contract with Abraham and said that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And church family, we are living in the midst of that blessing. You are are the recipients, the beneficiaries of that blessing that was promised by God to Abraham, and we're living in it. It's a reality we are experiencing today. Abraham walked with God long before the law had ever been given to Moses. Think of it. How central is the Bible to our relationship with God? Abraham had no book. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? And of course, he came long before Moses and the law. He also came long, long, long before Jesus came to fulfill the righteous demands of that same law. I remember when I was living in Florida, there was one older gentleman, and after one service, we were sitting in the fellowship hall drinking coffee and talking, and he said to me, He waited till everybody else was gone from the table. (laughs) He wanted to have a private conversation with me, and so he waited until it was just me and him. And then he said, you know, something I've worried about my whole life as a churchgoer is when you look at everything that's in the Bible, I'm a little confused about how a person is saved. He said, take, for example, like, and he actually mentioned Abraham. Abraham never heard of Jesus, he said. How was Abraham saved? Okay. And if he was saved by something other than Jesus, can a person still be saved by something other than Jesus today? So it's a critical question for us to entertain. I'm looking forward in the weeks ahead to diving in And studying the life of Abraham. There's so many important lessons for us as God's people today. But let's begin with a very simple question. What was the basis of Abraham's salvation? In what sense can we say he was saved? This man who never heard of Jesus. Never heard of the cross or the substitutionary atoning sacrifice. If Abraham was a sinner... And over the course of our study, we will see that he most certainly was. How could we say that he was saved from his sins when he lived and died all those thousands of years before the great event happened on which we pin our hopes for salvation? If we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was Abraham, who never heard the name of Jesus, saved on the basis of something else? I keep reframing the question, and I'll stop now. But that's the question in front of us as we take up the life of Abraham this morning. And when we come to Acts 4.12, it makes it forcefully clear there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. How do we jibe that with the reality of Abraham's faith? Well, in the fourth chapter of Romans... Paul seeks to answer this very question. However, before I read it, I want to point out that all that Paul says in Romans chapter 4 presupposes that there are two schemes by which human beings seek salvation and the favor of God. The first involves man doing a work to please God and the second involves God doing a work on behalf of man and for his joy. I, I don't care how you break it down. Take any world religion, take any scheme by which human beings have sought to be made right with God and it will boil out into one of these two schemes. Man does a work to please God Or God does a work for the joy of man. That's it. There is no third way. Now, the first way, which again is man doing a work to please God, guys, that is paganism in all of its varied forms. And the second, God doing a work on behalf of man and for his joy, that is the gospel. That is Christianity. And it stands alone in adopting that scheme for the salvation of man. Now, according to the first scheme, God is portrayed as being, as a being who must be sacrificed to, appeased, placated. You must prove yourself worthy to him by meeting his righteous demands and by making sacrifices of various sorts. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater God would be in your debt. And the reason why my friend, sitting there over a cup of coffee all those years ago, was confused, and I appreciated that man's tender-hearted honesty, is when he reads the Old Testament accounts, he sees the necessity of sacrifice. He sees Abraham building an altar and sacrificing animals and things like that. And he wonders, and he wonders, 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 is there some other way? And if so, this is really the terrifying question, have I missed it? Did I miss it? So that's the first scheme. The second scheme is the gospel, which says that salvation is a free gift given to unworthy sinners through grace and by faith. So the question at the heart of Romans 4 is this, and I say it for the last time. This will be the last time I reframe the question. Can it be said that Abraham was saved by Jesus? Or... Was Abraham saved by his works apart from what Jesus did? Now, it's a fairly long section of Scripture, and whenever I get read to, I tend to fall asleep. So I don't know if you have to doodle. What do you have to do? I'm going to go ahead and read the entirety of Romans chapter 4. I don't normally read sections of Scripture this long on Sunday mornings, but I'm going to read it all. Do your best to hang in there. Paul writes this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver according to the promise of God. Concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And we'll stop right there. There's a lot in there. Uh, as I was studying it this week, I just was like, oh man, how come I didn't make my whole sermon series on this chapter? There's a lot in here we could spend time on, and it would all be worthy of our time. Let me just direct you to what I think is the, the key verse in this whole chapter, and on which Paul rests his entire argument here. He quotes Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul puts a lot of weight on those words, counted to him. He revisits the significance of that word choice in verse 5, verse 6, again in verse 9. Verses 22, 23, 24, he keeps coming back again and again and again to this language that God gave us concerning Abraham's faith, that it was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, he begins and ends this portion of his letter by drawing our attention to it, and he reminds us of it there in the middle as well. And what it means to say that his belief in God was counted as righteousness is that Abraham was not righteous in fact. Abraham was not righteous. He had faith that was counted to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like the gospel. Do any of us claim right standing before God the Father because of our own righteousness? No. But your faith in Jesus is counted to you as righteousness. That's the basis of our hope. And Paul makes the argument that the basis of Abraham's hope was the same. He is saved by grace, not works. He is saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, some way, somehow, not any sacrifices he offered. Scripture plainly states that faith is the key to salvation for all people down through history. But how could God save people without their knowing of Christ's sacrifice for them? That's, I said that was the last time, but it wasn't. (laughs) The, the, The answer is that God saved them based on their response to the knowledge that they did have. Abraham's faith looked forward to something he could not see. Whereas today, believers look back on events that we can see, that have been made known to us. The fact that no one is saved apart from the death and resurrection of Christ is clearly stated in Scripture. Again, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts clearly states there is no other name under heaven by which we can know salvation. The basis of salvation has always been and will always be what Jesus did for man, not anything man does. R.C. Sproul says this in response to the question, how were the people in the Old Testament redeemed? How could they possibly be redeemed when the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, all the trappings of the Old Testament sacrificial system, could not in and of themselves save? Well, Paul in his epistle to the Romans, this is R.C. Sproul saying this, uses Abraham as an example of people in the Old Testament who were saved, not by obeying the works of the law, not through the rites and rituals and the sacrifices of the liturgy of Israel, but Abraham was justified by faith. Well, how could that be? What did he have faith in exactly? Never heard of Jesus? Well, Sproul goes on, well, the basis of Abraham's salvation was the work of Jesus Christ. Abraham was saved exactly the same way we are saved with one significant difference. Abraham's faith was in a promise that was not yet fulfilled. Our faith is in the promise that has been fulfilled. Abraham and the Old Testament saints looked ahead into the future for their awaited Messiah, their awaited Redeemer. We look backwards to the past, to the one who has come. I like to think of it this way, just to help us understand looking at the cross from Abraham's perspective. Back during the Advent season, we defined hope as a confident expectation, a future believing faith. We celebrate and believe in the second coming, don't we, fellow Christian? We believe it. I accept it as fact. I haven't seen it yet. We have faith, a future-believing faith in the second coming. And that future-believing faith moves us to worship. It changes how we live in the midst of these days. It gives us comfort when we grieve for the loss of our brothers and sisters. It helps us in our faith even when we face our own mortality. Well, 10,000 years from now, in glory, you will still worshipfully celebrate the fact of the second coming. Our worship today celebrates a promise given, and it's rested in a rock-solid belief in the one who gave the promise. But our worship then will celebrate a promise kept. Abraham looked forward with hope to a God who saves the lost, to a righteous God who extends grace to sinners. We look back with gratitude toward the same exact thing. Abraham didn't know the name of Jesus, but he believed in a God who justifies the ungodly. He didn't know about the cross, but he Pinned his hopes to a God who saves, and not his own resume of good works. This is the whole of Paul's argument concerning the saving faith of Abraham. It's made of the same stuff that you possess in the gospel. It's resting in a God who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In the early church, much of the debate between the works celebrating people who wanted to um, undermine the good news of the gospel, undermine grace, it centered around a lot of debate surrounding this issue of circumcision. I didn't count how many times, but it's mentioned a lot of times there in Romans chapter four. Paul is really harping on this fact uh, surrounding circumcision as it relates to Abraham. Abraham, of course, is the first person who received the command from God to undergo the rite of circumcision, not only him but all the males in his household. And it's this external symbol of an internal fact that they've been set apart, brought into special relationship with God, and they're living in relationship with God by faith. And the rite of circumcision was meant to externally demonstrate an inner truth. It's a bit like my wedding ring. I can't become married by putting on a wedding ring. No. The wedding ring is just an external demonstration of an inner commitment I have to my wife Sarah. And that's what circumcision was intended by. But when Christianity first emerged into the world... There were those uh, because Christianity emerged into the milieu of Judaism. And so there was this messy period where as people went out preaching grace, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. those who had grown up and were um, undergone spiritual formation in the traditions of Judaism said, "We believe in the necessity of Jesus, but in order to become a follower of God, you also have to do some works." You have to also, like Abraham, undergo this rite of circumcision. And Paul sees this as a definitely a hill to die on. And if, in order to see how passionately Paul feels about the, this issue, read the book of Galatians. There you will see Paul fired up, <laughs> language that frankly surprises me when I read that book this is not a small issue in Paul's mind. In Paul's mind, we are either saved by what God did for us, or we are just embracing another form of paganism, wherein man earns his place with God through our works. It's not small stuff. And Paul is fired up inspired by the Holy Spirit, his words pour out into Scripture with in a very strong, robust pushing back against this idea. And so Paul, here in the middle part of Romans chapter 4, devotes a lot of time to showing us that Abraham, his faith was counted to him as righteousness before ever circumcision was spoken about by God. Really wants us to see this and to put this act this practice in its proper perspective this is not gone away today by the way in many ways the new testament equivalent of circumcision is the rite of baptism and there are denominations that say that in order to know salvation you must be baptized i think baptism is incredibly important hard to overstate its importance When Jesus was giving the Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them my commandments and baptizing them. In other words, teach them what I've commanded and then have them do something to demonstrate their obedience by undergoing baptism. So very critically important that believers take seriously the command to be baptized. If you've not been baptized, I would love to talk to you about that. If you're a believer in Jesus and you want to undergo the uh, want to go through baptism, please come talk to me. It is such a wonderful thing to do. However, baptism 100% does not save you. I can think of one believer in the New Testament who we know for a fact was never baptized. Do you remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus to whom Jesus said, "I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise." That cat was never baptized. No way, no how. But he's there, no doubt about it. I don't believe that your salvation hangs on this necessarily, but I also don't want to undermine the critical importance of obedience in the Christian life. Faith without works is dead. What kind of faith says to a Lord, no thanks? <laughs> So if you haven't been baptized, I want you to take very seriously this issue. It's a very important and weighty thing to obey God in all of his commands. And this is definitely a command that he's given. However, we would be wrong to say, just as those who insisted on circumcision, that your, ba- your salvation depends on something you do. No. No, no, no. <laughs> Before Abraham was ever circumcised, Before ever God gave a command that he then had to obey, it says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It's not righteous in fact, but it was counted to him. Paul really wants us to see that. And I think some of the cultural nuance of what he's saying there, the force of it is lost on us because we aren't living in the middle of that debate. But it really would have landed like a ton of bricks, I think, on the people who were originally hearing it. And that's why he spends so much time on it. I love verse 5. This is maybe not the most important verse in the chapter, or the one Paul alludes to the most, but it's my personal favorite. He says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Four things here. I'm not going to spend much time on them. The first is this it is God who justifies. Let let that settle over your souls. God is the one who does the work. believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Guys, you are not like a terrier who is confused about who the master in the house is. (laughs) Uh, You know, those little yippee dogs who thinks they're in charge of protecting the whole household and they bark and bite at everything. I love going in a house where the dog is just calmly laying there like, if they think it's okay for you to be here, it is. They understand rightly who's in charge. Those dogs are chill. They know their place. If you'll hear it lovingly, I'm here this morning to tell you your place as a creature. It is God who does the work of justifying. He gets the glory. You get the salvation. Settle into it. Relax. He's the one who saves. Second, Guys, is you absolutely are ungodly. This is why this is so joyous, (laughs) such a wonderful, joyous truth. Not only is it God who justifies, but He justifies people who are ungodly, who don't deserve it. One of the reasons why we have to revisit this truth so often in the church is because we are always becoming what we worship. And if we set our sights on a God who justifies the ungodly, then we will extend grace to one another when we fall short. And we'll pursue each other with a patient love. We'll extend forgiveness and grace to people who blow it, and blow it again, and blow it again. I want to live in that kind of community where I'm loved and extended grace because I'm aware of how deeply flawed I am. And so one of the reasons why I get, as a church leader, really passionate about preaching the fact that God justifies the ungodly, because if ever we are to be a gospel-shaped church who extends gospel grace to one another or to the lost that live outside, we must first set our sights on the one who first loved us in all of our unloveliness, Romans 5, 6 tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. So first, it's God who justifies. Paganism says man does the work. The gospel says God already did it. Second, the objects of his affection are the ungodly. He justifies lawbreakers. Third, the ungodly cannot justify themselves through works. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You're going to get what you deserve. And fourth, faith is counted as righteousness. Guys, this is, this is the glory of the gospel in a sentence. <laughs> You're not righteous in fact. Neither was Abraham. None of us are. But when you put your trust in Jesus for salvation, your faith in what Jesus did for you is counted as righteousness. All of Jesus' righteousness is credited to you. That's a beautiful thing. And that is the great hope around which all of our church life centers. That's the good news we proclaim to the lost world. Faith in Jesus can be counted to you as righteousness. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to see we're going to see what that faith that Abraham had, the way it showed up and found expression in the way he lived his life on planet Earth. He lived in the midst of incredibly complicated relationships, in incredibly complicated times. There's great depravity in the story of Abraham. And we're going to, just as there is in our own day, and that's why this is such an incredible story for us to center a few weeks on as a church. Having embraced the truth, that faith is counted to us as righteousness, that Jesus has done something for us which we could not have done for ourselves, and we've embraced it, we've owned it, we've received it, what difference does that make in the life of a human being who then sets out to navigate the complicated, messy realities on the ground having believed that? That's one of the great questions that hangs over the life of Abraham, and it's, that's where a lot of the wonderful, powerful applications will come for us because like Abraham, we're still stepping out into the unknown when we say we're going to follow God. We all venture out from Haran going, not knowing, where is following Jesus going to take us? To what end is this bringing us? And along the way, what kind of difficult things will we encounter? Well, let's look to what God has showed us in the story of Abraham in the coming weeks. I hope you guys can come back, be part of the conversation. I really feel like God wants to have some important conversations with us centered around this portion of Scripture. But in closing, God's plan of salvation is simple. It is not complicated. It is not difficult to understand, but it is precise the only way to be saved is by grace through faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. Now, maybe there's one here this morning or listening on the radio who has never put their trust in Jesus for salvation. You're aware or have a growing awareness that you're a sinner, that God is righteous, you've broken his laws, and you know, too, that he's a righteous judge who will punish Lawbreaking. He cannot be a righteous judge and look the other way on our lawbreaking. And you've grown in your awareness of the fact that your relationship with God is broken, that you're a sinner, that you're separated from Him, and that the Word of God in the Bible is true. That because of our sins, we are objects of wrath. And that on the last day when Jesus returns, some will enter into reward and others will enter into the just punishment for their sins. I have good news for you, friend. God does not want to give you what you deserve. He does not want to give you what you richly deserve. He wants to give you a free gift. Salvation. And that not because of anything you've done. but Because he is good. Guys, he is oh so good. So if that's you this morning, if you've come to see and believe the beautiful truth that Jesus died for your sins, and you want to embrace, you want to receive that free gift, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer in closing. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or even raise your hands or anything. But if you pray this prayer with me, then you receive that free gift of salvation. If you've already put your trust in Jesus, I just would invite you to pray for anybody who might be in this moment, wondering about whether they should take that step and become a Jesus follower themselves. This is the prayer I would pray if I were you. Dear Heavenly Father, I know it's not important in this moment that I get my words just exactly right. You are the God who looks beyond our words to the heart that offers them. God you know you know you know all things but father i know that i am a sinner that i my sin has cut me off from you god that because of my sin i am deserving of punishment but god i believe you in your word amazingly You say that although the wages of sin is death, the free gift on offer from you is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And Father, I receive that gift. Like Abraham, God, I believe that you are a God who justifies the ungodly. And that's who I am. I believe that's who you are. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that on the cross, all of my sins were transferred to Jesus. Your wrath was poured out on him. And that all of his righteousness is now credited to me by faith. Father, I ask for your help to walk now as a new believer in Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd give me the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through that Spirit, a radical new capacity to follow you and obey you in the midst of these days. Father, help me to live rightly, to make you visible through my obedience. And Father, I thank you for this free gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if that was you this morning... That's yours. You're saved. I just ask don't keep it a secret. Uh, Tell me. Tell somebody else. Tell another believer. If you talk to me, I'd love to tell you about some next steps you might take as a new follower in Jesus.